Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Museums at the Mic, the podcast of the Alberta Museums Association. My name is Ben Fast, and I'm a program lead with the AMA. I'm recording this episode in Edmonton, Alberta, which is on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many Indigenous people, including the Cree, Salto, Nitsitapi Blackfoot, Métis, and Nakota Sioux peoples. The podcast episode that was released ahead of our June conference event had so many interesting interviews that we just couldn't fit them all in one episode. So, the AMA is releasing two bonus episodes this summer with these extended conversations with colleagues from around the world. In this bonus episode, you'll hear two conversations I had with colleagues in Ontario and in New Zealand who are working on innovative museum projects that relate to our 2021 conference series pillars of community, reconciliation, innovation, and inclusion. First up, I go to school to learn about languages and traveling exhibits with the Canadian Language Museum and their co-founder, Dr. Elaine Gold. So, Elaine, thank you very much for joining the AMA podcast today. Well, I'm very happy to be here and to discuss our exhibit called Cree the People's Language. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about this exhibit, and I thought it would be good for us to start by actually describing what it is, what it looks like. Would, would you be able to give us a quick audio tour of it? Oh, I will do my best to do that. <laughs> so um, this exhibit consists of six freestanding banner stands. So these banner stands are about seven feet tall and maybe three feet wide, and they have two sides. So one side is in English and one side is French. And they're very colorful. And these stands pack down into two small shipping bins. And that's the way we're able to send this exhibit across the country to be displayed at many different venues. Um, in addition to these six colorful banners, so there are maps on them and there's all sorts of information about the language, language trees. We're gonna talk more about what sort of information is included. But in addition, there's a stand that we call a listening station. And you can think of it as an oversized music stand. And on that stand are small push button speakers that visitors can push and hear different dialects of Cree. They can hear stories in Cree, they can hear songs. So that's the audio component and the rest of the exhibit is all visual text. Um, and so for these exhibits, I mean, you have pictures of them on the website and we'll link to that in the show notes. But one of the things that struck me was the map of Canada as it is today with the provinces um, and the Cree map across from basically the western edge of Alberta, even eastern bits of BC, all the way across to Labrador. Um, how did you produce an exhibit about a language group that is spread so far across Canada and has all those regional variations and that also needs to travel around Canada? So this is a challenging thing. It's a challenging thing in, in many ways. It's challenging, first of all, just to create an exhibit 
about a language that whoever comes to view that exhibit will be able to appreciate it. So it has to be an exhibit that both people who might know some Cree and people who know no Cree at all will still enjoy and be able to learn something. So the first thing is to admit I speak no Cree at all. I am familiar with the syllabics writing system, so I can read it a little bit, but I don't speak it. So of course, I need to work with first language Cree speakers in order to get the information and to make sure that our information is correct and respectful. Um, yes, it is a big challenge with such a widespread language and so many dialects. And I was extremely fortunate to discover a young man who is Cree. His, one of his first languages is Cree. He was born and raised in Quebec, but he was also had a master's degree in linguistics. And he was also working on a Moose Cree dictionary at the time when I met him. And he was through his linguistic work, very familiar with the dialects across the country. So he, I really, his name is Kevin Brussel, he's now a physician, and I really relied on him for a lot of the content and the accuracy of the content. He was also able to find examples of words that would be understandable across the different dialects. Like we were able to pick words because he knew the different dialects that would be able to be comprehensible across the dialects. And he was also able to explain in very simple language the ways in which the dialects differed. So he was a gold mine. Now, as we worked, we also consulted with other Cree speakers, people in Saskatchewan, people in Ontario, and he himself was from Quebec, to make sure that the content, you know, that this was accessible to everybody and that they approved of the content. So it, you know, it was a collaborative effort with many voices involved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what did you want to focus on given that you had such a limited space? It's only those few banners, it has to travel. How did you decide what to include given that there's so much to talk about? Yeah, so there's the six banners. So we had to you know, think about how to divide up the topics. So this is a very important reconciliation project. And there are a lot of people in the non-Indigenous community who really don't know much about Indigenous languages and don't understand the huge variety and the fact that there are different language families in Canada. And so we wanted to introduce the concept of language families. And so we have a language family tree on the front. We thought that was very important. We find that maps are terrific things to have on exhibits that people relate very well to maps and are really good at showing the different dialects. So we knew that we wanted to have a map and include the different dialects from across the country. So we wanted to talk about the language itself. And you think, well, what, what can you share with people who might not be familiar with the language at all that they would find interesting in the language itself? Because the language you speak helps to give you a worldview. And so we try to pick out 
interesting aspects of the language. And one thing that's very interesting in Algonquian languages in general, and in Cree specifically, is the fact that there isn't masculine and feminine gender. So people coming from English and French are very familiar with the language being divided up into masculine and feminine. So especially in, in French, where every noun is either masculine or feminine, and even in English, where we don't have that with the nouns, but we have it with pronouns. And it's a big problem in English with the pronouns with he and her and them and they and a lot of debate around use of pronouns. And it's a wonderful thing to learn that in Algonquian languages, there are what categories that you might call gender, they're categories, but they're animate and inanimate. So there's no issue of masculine and feminine. And every noun is divided up into either animate or inanimate within language. So this was something that we thought was very interesting about the language and something that we wanted to share. We also wanted to explain that the language is polysynthetic. So polysynthetic um, means that you can create very big words in the language. So words that would be a whole sentence in English or in French can be one word in actually most Canadian Indigenous languages. And so we wanted to introduce that. So we have some examples of um, one word that would be a whole sentence in English and French. So that was something we wanted to include. And we also included, there were so many interesting things about the language we could have included, but the space is short. But we also wanted to include something about classifiers. So in English or French, you could just say, I picked it up. And the it could be a ball, and it could be a stick, or it could be a leaf. Um, it doesn't matter what shape it is, you would just use the verb pick, and you would say, I picked it up. But in Cree, uh, the verb you use is going to differ whether you're picking up something round, or whether you're picking up something long and thin, or whether you're picking up something flat, like a piece of paper. And again, this means you're going to look at you're going to interact with the world a little bit differently because you're thinking about the shapes of things. We thought in terms of linguistics, that's what we decided to include. We want to talk about the writing system. And most people in Canada are familiar with the Roman alphabet, but they're not so familiar with syllabics. And syllabics are used quite a bit for Cree, different Cree dialects. And so it's a very interesting writing system and fairly simple to explain. So we did include something about the writing system. And then we wanted to include something about revitalization and language maintenance. And even though Cree is the biggest indigenous language in Canada, it's still at risk. All of our indigenous languages are at risk to different degrees because if the younger generation isn't speaking it, it's going to disappear. And so we want to talk a little bit about efforts that are going into maintaining the language and also to making the language uh, go with the times, change with the times. So how does it incorporate new words for computer or helicopter or cultural items that weren't traditional? And so we talked a little bit about that. Mm -hmm.
It sounds like it's a lot of information that's put into it, that's for sure. You talked a little bit about the fact that this is, a, uh, in many ways, a reconciliation initiative. It's important for reconciliation. And you also talked about the risk that the language currently faces. But we also talked about how there's really not that much information available in terms of space to teach somebody the language, for example. So what was sort of the outcome that you wanted people to have um, in terms of understanding the language or just having that better sense of it? Was there any sort of goal that you had for people who would be attending and reading these panels? I think the goals are different for the different communities. And what I've been very happy with within the Indigenous community, because it has toured quite extensively to smaller Indigenous communities. I was able to go with it to Moose Factory in Ontario, and, and that was wonderful. And uh, one of my favorite photos I have is from the Fort Vermilion Library in Northern Alberta, where um, it was shown and they brought in Cree children and they brought in a drummer and it was part of a wider cultural discussion. So I've had wonderful feedback in the Cree community, things like, you've taught me things about my language that I didn't even know, that they were familiar with their own dialect, but I had no idea of how big the language was or didn't know about the language family and the different members of the family tree. So I've had wonderful feedback about that. I've had feedback that they that some people felt that it's helpful for their own language revitalization projects because it when you see this very colorful exhibit, it it does create some pride in the language. Like, oh, you know, this is worth an exhibit and it's really interesting to look at. So I, I like to think that it contributes to language revitalization. Within the non-Indigenous community, I've certainly had younger people come up to me and say, I wish they had taught Indigenous languages at my high school, like when they see it, or you know, maybe I'll be able to take some courses at university in Indigenous languages. So it, it can be a spur to language learning. It's not, a, it's not in itself a tool to language learning. You can't learn Cree by looking at this exhibit. You can learn about it but hopefully it will spark your interest to go a little further. The Canadian Language Museum has a number of traveling exhibits that spark interest in many different languages. Can you tell me briefly about some of those or about um, other ways that people could learn more about the Canadian Language Museum? Sure. Well, they can go to our website and all our exhibits are, are there on the website. You can click up for each exhibit page. You can actually click on the images of the panels and blow them up and read them um, yourself. So the, the content is there. We start, this is actually our 10th anniversary. So we started 10 years ago and our first exhibit was about English in Canada. Um, our second exhibit was about the Inuit language and, and similar challenges to create that exhibit to what we discussed about the Cree exhibit. It, it also stretches from coast to coast, uh, the language, and also uses syllabics as the writing system. So uh, we did that. 
Uh, we did an exhibit on French in Canada, Le Français au Canada, and again talks about the different dialects and the history of French in Canada and how it differs both from French in France, but also how Acadian French, say, different, differs from Laurentian French and how it's being kept up across the country. The fourth exhibit was the Cree exhibit. We have an exhibit called Dictionaries and Indigenous Languages, and that really is a difficult subject because the relationship between dictionaries and indigenous language is quite fraught over the centuries. And the first dictionaries were basically done to convert indigenous peoples away from their own beliefs to Christianity. And, and those were the very first dictionaries. And then later, to help teach English and French. They were more for the teachers. Again, they weren't for the communities themselves. Even when anthropologists and linguists became involved in the early 20th century, it was more for let's record these languages before they disappear and also make my academic name. But it wasn't in order to help the communities in any way keep their languages. And it's only very recently that dictionaries have become part of the community's arsenal, I should say, for revitalizing and maintaining their languages. And now lots of communities are, are realizing they better create dictionaries now while they have access to the elders and can collect all of this vocabulary that might be disappearing. So now they're becoming very important tools for revitalization. So we have that one. We have an exhibit about um, languages in Toronto. So we are based in Toronto. We have one exhibit that doesn't really tour beyond Toronto, but looks at the history of languages in Toronto and la Toronto being you know, very multicultural city now was not a hundred years ago. And how did the street streetscapes change? So it's really, uh, an exhibit of street photographs looking how different languages came to be prominent in the streetscapes over the past really 150 years. So that's a different exhibit. Um, our most recent exhibit is Sign Languages of Canada, and we found six sign languages. Now that hasn't toured yet because we've finished it during COVID. So there's nowhere to display this exhibit, but hopefully in the fall, it will start to tour. But we found six sign languages in Canada. So there's ASL that most people are familiar with. There's um, Langue des Signes Québécois, which is spoken in Quebec and Northern Ontario, or used in Quebec and Northern Ontario. It's a maritime sign language, which is based on the British sign language. And of all of them is the most endangered, I would say. Uh, being replaced more by ASL now. And then we found three indigenous sign languages, the Inuit sign language spoken mostly in the central Arctic, used in the central Arctic, Oneida sign language, which is being developed in Western Ontario right now. Um, and the Plains Indian sign language, which is probably the oldest sign language in North America and predated European contact. So, mm -hmm. Uh, that's an exhibit that we're very excited about. We also have an exhibit called A Tapestry of Voices. <laughs> that's a very ambitious exhibit because we just try to introduce people to all of the languages in Canada. So there's a discussion of Indigenous languages and of more recent immigrant languages and official languages and what does it mean for a language to be official? So looking at language rights a little bit 
and looking at language endangerment and language maintenance. So we have that tapestry of voices exhibit as well. So those are sort of the, our essential traveling exhibits. And we, we pretty well do one a year or one every other year. Well, thank you so much for telling me about it. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating thing. And, and who knew there was so much to discover about languages in Canada? I guess you did, but uh, hopefully many more people can, can discover that as well. Thanks so much, Elaine. You're welcome. As you heard in our conversation, this year marks the 10th anniversary of the Canadian Language Museum and their traveling exhibits. With options available for Canadian English dialects, Inuit languages, sign language in Canada, along with many other languages, check out their website at languagemuseum.ca to learn more. You can also see all six panels from the Cree The People's Language exhibit, download a supplementary resource package, or tour five other online exhibits all on their website. One cool thing about this podcast and our newfound virtual work environment is that we can more easily share stories from around the world with you, wherever you are listening. For the second half of this episode, here's a conversation I had with Rachel Yates, Curator of Pacific Cultures at the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongarewa. I wanted to ask Rachel about Project Ika, a co-collecting project that documented the effects of climate change on Tokelau, three low-lying coral atolls in the South Pacific. I learned about this project in a blog post written by Rachel for Te Papa. And if you want to read this blog post before listening to our conversation, pause the episode now and click the link in the episode notes. It won't take you too long to read, and there are some amazing photos of the atolls there as well. Okay, are you finished reading it? Well then, let's get to our conversation. Talofalava, kia ora, and good morning to everybody from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Olo ingoa or Rachel Yates. My name is Rachel Yates, and I whakapapa or have ancestral links to Vaisala and Savai, Mersey um, in England, and then also whakapapa to Faleloa and Hapai Tonga through my husband and children. So I'm born and bred from Te Whanganui Atara, which is Wellington in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and have been with the museum um, for a few years now. So lovely to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today was a blog that's been recently posted to the Te Papa website and blog called Co-Collecting Climate Change in Tokelau, Project Ika. Um, can you start just by briefly explaining what that project is? Yeah, so that project, um, sort of as the blog goes through, uh, talks about co-collecting as a concept, um, as a sort of a curatorial practice that uh, our team can work with. So it's really something that started with uh, senior curator Sean Mellon and some of the extended Pacific team here. And uh, what we were wanting to do was to better reflect our communities in the collection and kind of shift a little bit of the, I guess, curatorial authority or power um, that we have when we are building up the collections. So the team had already done a few projects, um, for example, one in Guam with artists, another in Hawaii with Aloha shirts, 
And then when I came on board, um, I was able to help uh, with a really amazing project around Tongan youth in Aotearoa, uh, which these are all areas that we had identified as um, a gap in the collections and using co-collecting, which means working alongside the community, contracting them to come in and really taking their advice and direction about how they want to be represented. So Project Ika was a co-collecting um, initiative or project that is based on Tokelau and dealing with contemporary um, discussions and conversations around climate change. And where is Tokelau? Can you explain the connection to Te Papa for that? Yeah, so Tokelau is uh, made up of, officially politically made up of three atolls, or there is, uh, although they're, they reference four culturally and historically. Um, and these are atolls in the Pacific that are low-lying coral atolls to the north of Samoa. Um, to get to Tokelau, you can only travel by boat from Samoa. So where we are in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, we catch a plane to Samoa and then from there, you take a, a minimum of 24 hour journey to the first atoll, dependent on where you go. It could be um, longer, but it has a population of about 1,500 people and actually majority of Tokelau uh, Tokelauans live in Aotearoa, in uh, the town that Te Papa is based in, uh, Wellington. So our collection is sort of mandated to not only represent the experiences of local Pacifica communities, uh, which is the collective of sort of the Pacific population here, uh, but additionally as well, we're mandated to collect from the wider region. And sort of Project Ika was part of reaching out and wanting to connect with those, um, you know, that are facing the challenges of climate change, um, you know, in, in a very visible way. And what are the the impacts of climate change for the Tokelauans? How do they experience it on their atolls? Yeah, so there's probably the most obvious one is the sea level rise that uh, we see, and you know, there are clear markers in the geography of Tokelau where um, you know the people we worked with, the co-collectors, I'll call them, they were a fantastic group. By the way, I have to shout out to Paula Favor, climate change manager, as well as the whole co-collecting group. Um, but when they showed us their experiences on the island, there were there was a lot of change in terms of sea level rise. Uh, one of the, the famous sort of, um, or the well-known stories that we have now is from Atonio Tuya, and he is sitting on the seawall looking out to where he used to grow up um, playing rugby um, you know and that's completely submerged in water so sea level rise is a huge one um, and then you've also got to deal with ocean acidification um, water becoming brackish uh, and because it's got its unique challenges anyway in terms of access to the island um, or to the atolls uh, climate change has really just intensified a lot of the environmental challenges that Tokelau uh, were dealing with beforehand. You talked a little bit about the reason why Te Papa is involved in collecting these stories and representing these stories in the museum, but what was it that the museum was interested in collecting, whether they would have been collecting it on their own or as part of this co-collecting thing? What would, what would be the, 
the things they would want to collect? Yeah, well, I think um, for Te Papa, at that time, uh, we were going through a massive renewal on the floor here. Uh, there's an exhibition, permanent, one of our permanent exhibitions called Te Taiao, and that is science related. Now, historically, that has been based on uh, the land masses, like the North Island, South Island, and also um, related islands to Aotearoa New Zealand as a nation, as we sort of commonly understand. Um, it didn't extend to what we would say maybe as the round countries. Now, Tokelau as a territory of Aotearoa New Zealand comes in um, into that sort of sweep of, of nations. So it was an opportunity uh, because we knew that uh, Titaia wanted to address the challenges that uh, we are fa facing through climate change. And we thought this would be an ideal opportunity to link mainstream sort of populations in New Zealand to what was going on to other New Zealand citizens. Now the kind of thinking and the imaginary around Tokelau as New Zealand citizens as well is not something that's well known. So this was a chance to sort of link the Tokelau community directly to mainstream audiences of Aotearoa and to encourage us to press pause on what we're doing in our everyday lives um, on the bigger islands, but also how um, we are, we're affecting people of our own communities um, and their, their livelihoods. So the project came was instigated um, or, you know, or sparked by a need for the floor here at Te Papa and um, the science team were fantastic and being open to connecting with indigenous ways of knowing or um, indigenous uh, ways to call it or, or to talk about climate change. And then that really was the link that we were able to make. And as a curator, um, I did have ideas after doing a lot of research and reading, right, about climate change and its effects. And I really wanted to learn more about what it was like on the ground. Um, but as soon as we sort of started the project, it became really clear that the community had their own agenda and they also had their own language to talk about climate change. Um, so what we ended up with was strongly shaped by them because um, it's quite liberating to create in that way because if you give up your expectations, um, you're able to sort of reflect their stories um, in a better way. And I'm not saying that that um, gets rid of sort of the power dynamic that's still there because that's still in existence, but I did find it a really um, encouraging way to, to help communities see themselves in the museum. I'm not sure if that quite makes sense, but I'm just trying to give you a picture that there was a practical need, but then also we engaged with a community that had their own agenda and that wanted to participate for different reasons. And that sort of um, connection shaped what it was. And then there was just a lot of lobbying um, here for us to acknowledge sort of, we're taking these stories as directed um, rather than having sort of a, a long list, short list. There was nothing like that. We really did um, take what the community gave us and then we were able to long list and short list the digital aspects of it. And so what were the things that were actually collected from the islands, either by your co-collectors or by Te Papa when, when you visited there? 
Yeah, so what happened was, um, probably to give you a better idea of what the project was, I traveled to Tokelau with Paula Fiverr, who is the climate change manager, and we visited all three Taupulinga. So they're, they're the Taupulinga are the elder council of each atoll. And through them, I was able to pitch, okay, we wanna do something around co-collecting. We've done these co-collecting projects. We really think Tokelau could have something to say here as a place that is difficult to access. Um, we wanna take advantage of the connections and relationships we've made with Tokelau and perhaps work on building up our collection, which was low anyway. So from there, the, um, the project was sanctioned um, and it had been translated. I had written up sort of a brief uh, sort of overarching document that had been translated into the Tokelau language and then it was uh, hotly debated and contested in the Taupulinga environment. So once we had that all clear, we returned to Aotearoa and then I, we had already put the call out to each Taupulinga if they could prepare three co-collectives that would be willing to A, um, travel to Wellington and workshop with us and learn about the museum and see our current holdings and then uh, be returned to Tokelau um, and over a set period, think about what they might propose for the collection, which then on a follow-up trip, Te Papa would go and purchase um, as required. So those were sort of the steps of the Project Ika in general. So then when we got there, a lot of them had physical taonga ready. Um, and interestingly, the Taonga reflected a lot of the conversations that we were having at the museum. They weren't speaking about um, sea level rise and ocean acidification using that terminology. What they were concerned about is loss of land equating to loss of culture and identity and how they would be able to mitigate those risks um, with the population in Aotearoa. So a lot of what we were offered were historical, cultural taonga, or what we would call artifacts here. Um, so for example, the four artifacts that made it to the floor in Tetayao's exhibition, the first is a tuluma, which is a fishing box. It's quite a large one. And historically, these um, were used as the fishing, uh, as fishing equipment for Tukelau and it's also got different qualities, like it could act as a buoy as well in the water. And there was a lot of indigenous knowledge sort of wrapped around the importance of fishing. And the Tuluma was an example of that. So that was the first. In the next case, we've also got um, a bailer, a historic bailer, and a fan, and, um, which you know, symbolizes some of the women's work on the atolls. And they sort of question how are we gonna react to climate change? You know, how are we gonna cool down? How are we gonna, um, are we gonna bail out the water out of our canoe so that we can keep going? And sort of the final case um, that they have in Taiyao is about, is a steering paddle, a historical one, it's, you know, probably over a hundred years old that was under somebody's home. And when they gave that, it was about symbolism. What's the way forward? How do we take our language, culture, and identity with us as we move forward? So I really do need to give a shout out to the science team because um, historically at Te Papa, 
there has never been a Pacific presence in, in that space. So uh, for them to come on board with co-collecting, come to Tokelau as well, we had Leon Perry uh, come through. It was, it was pretty um, amazing. So that was the physical taonga. And then of course, in the blog, I talk about some of the digital elements that we were able to get. And that being something really that was requested by the community learning how to take photos or having access even to photos because what they were finding was they would be contracted by lots of aid agencies going in, lots of money going in, um, but in some instances they didn't even have the copyright to the, the images that were taken that sat with photographers or um, the artists and it was a difficult process for a place that uh, doesn't have as active Wi-Fi and internet connections as everywhere else. So there were all those things that came into how we ended up with the tanga or the artifacts that we ended up with. Mm -hmm. And that digital collecting, you said that that sort of came about because they were interested in it, not just Te Papa interested in doing that. How, how has that continued? Has that been something that's been a, a skill or a resource that stayed behind on the islands? Yeah, I personally think that we could do more in that aspect now. I think a big part of um, why we haven't probably pushed it to a place where I think it is quite sustainable and active for the community is life on my part, but also just because it was a one year sort of project. I was only contracted for the year. And when I left here, I was heavily pregnant and, and had a baby. So I've since come back and that's been a huge priority which is why I thought okay even though this was done a couple of years ago we need to push out the blog socialize it a little bit more because we do have um, goals we want to return and present um, at least the digital works back to them in terms of this is sort of an exhibition that we've been able to create into Aotearoa to achieve some of the goals that the project had but secondly uh, we had initially brainstormed on how, what if we created an Instagram account, for example, uh, to focus on Project Eka, and that would have something that could continue, and co-collectors themselves would all have access to, to Instagram and be able to update and take photos. But we have the issue of data, and then we have the issue of uh, these co-collectors were paid as part of Project Eka, but how are we able to sustain it if, um, you know, if everyday life and you're, you're working for your family and you've got a lot of cultural responsibilities, how do you balance that all out? Uh, and sort of maybe the final stream of connection that we, that I think will probably eventuate is um, from all of this, they wanted, we might not, we're not sure on what the digital sort of outcomes or outputs will be long-term, but at least for crafts and arts, we're looking at creating a link, a very strong link between Tukalau to supply somewhere like Te Papa, which is a national institution and has access to lots of tourists or lots of people interested in culture coming through our shop, coming to our page, so working on creating some sort of um, something that circular and returns back to, to Tokelau. So there are things here and there, but we have been heavily impact, 
by COVID and just uh, lack of access. Um, people have different priorities right now, which is completely understandable. We're trying to cope with some of the health challenges that are being presented and challenges to access. So this is a much more of a slow burner than sort of when I came back in 2019, you know, we, I said 2020, we need to go back to the Taupulina and do a lot of these things. But then in Aotearoa, we went into lockdown in March for four weeks, 2020. And sort of since then, we've had a lot of policy changes around um, travel, which makes it different, difficult when you're working in the region. Yeah, the other thing I did want to note is that's been really rewarding is seeing the co-collectors who previously, um, we worked with seven, but two of them um, are now working in climate change roles within Tokelau, um, you know, with other agencies and with the government, they were able to expand their team and, you know, the engagement that they had with us over the three or four months for two of them have been enough to be able to, uh, you know, link them up with other people and for them to make that part of their, their lives. And, and one of the guys, he's, um, you know, in his 20s, he was toying with the idea of whether he migrates to Australia or New Zealand because he has tertiary qualification and he wasn't sure what he was going to do on the atolls, although um, ideally he wanted to stay there with his, with his elderly family. So, Lena Bonifacio, that's his name, he's now been able to secure work um, with the Climate Change Unit. And that's really awesome to hear. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that makes uh, the connections and the engage, engagements with it. But I will admit, you know, from my own perspective, I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, I think we've had some wins but I think we could go a lot further. So that's sort of my job here to, you know, continue to advocate for the, not just the quick collectors, but the narratives and the storytelling that came out of the Yeah, it sounds like it's a long-term relationship building for one thing and also a long-term change from the museum's perspective. What are some of those impacts on the museum side? Yeah, I think um, more and more, I mean, more and more as we build up sort of currency around the language of co-collecting, it is becoming easier to say, um, hey, we could do a co-collecting with this community. And it has become sort of, and for us, I mean, as, as a curator, I feel like it's, it's safer um, for me to have those connections and to really be directed for them. Um, and I just think it's helping shift a little bit you know, the expectation of are we the leading institution that's going to leave, lead a lot of the difficult conversations to, you know, perhaps it's time we follow and we learn and it's a time to reflect on those leading conversations. So definitely, I think within my everyday business, I'm seeing those conversations be had more and more. And that's quite exciting. Um, and I guess time will tell. Um, in terms of the structural change that may be created, but definitely because I've only been here sort of, um, you know, very recently, sort of my experiences here have been within the last five, 
five years predominantly and in curator world that, you know, I, I kind of embarrassed to say I'm a curator because um, a lot of the curators have been here much longer and have more of that institutional knowledge. But definitely in, within my team, conversations with, you know, the likes of Sean Mellon, then my boss, Dr. Safua Akili Amaama, um, and Grace Hutton, our collections managers, you know, when they remark and they reflect on how far we've come along to be able to pitch something um, for the collections or to pitch a project or a public program or something as long-term as what we have been doing um, without any guarantees of what the taonga is, it's, that's pretty radical in terms of how things have changed over time. But it really is a tribute to all the work that was done before me. I feel like I'm coming in at a good time as somebody not from a glam sector background, you know, uh, it's, I don't really hesitate. I'm from Pacific Studies where um, critical empowerment, which is about empowering your communities, but having a critical lens on it. Um, I feel like that fits in really nicely with co-collecting and I'm actually really enjoying being part of that, um, part of that process. So there are, there are things being socialized, co-collecting is gaining currency. And I, I do think, organizationally, you know, probably consistent with the wider museum sector and glam sector, we are having some really hard conversations, but necessary conversations about our role and about where we put our resources. And I think this is one of those projects that really I felt good about where we were putting the resources. It was going into the people who were doing a lot of the work and they even just embody the work you know, and um, climate change, change is inherently part of being a tokelau person now. So all those things I think are promising and um, which makes the mahi worth it, you know, because not every project is like this. <laughs> you know, there are, um, not every acquisition comes in this way, but more and more as we sort of challenge our own thinking, um, these sorts of co-design, um, things that are co-designed seem to be a lot better institutionally for the community and, and definitely for myself, that's been the experience. Does that apply to any community? Can any community be a part of a co-collecting experience? I think so. And I mean, we work really closely with the New Zealand Histories team and they have had elements of this when it came to Christchurch, um, earthquakes, the effects of that. Uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily ethnic, or I'm not sure what terminology um, you use on your side of the world, but it doesn't have to be cultural in terms of ethnic. You know, I think subcultures and marginalized groups, um, you know, can, can be involved. I'm very interested to hear you talk about this co-collecting process because we, at least in my experience, use co-curation. And I don't know if there's really that big of a difference between co-curation and co-collecting. The outcome seems to be very similar, but maybe there's a little bit more of a focus on collecting the items and the stories rather than on the curation and displaying, maybe. Um, if Do you see a difference in that? And, and if you do see a difference in that, how how do you how do you go about navigating that? Yeah, I think I'm just thinking to myself. I wish Sean Mellon was here because um, he has purposefully 
chosen the term co-collecting as well as a distinct, it's a slight but distinct adjustment to co-curation. And I think again, um, the way you know we've spoken about it, it, it is about shifting the authority a little bit more away from the curator. Because when you mention curating, you know, that already has implications in there of crafting and uh, shaping. And admittedly, that never goes away, you know, that unless we're not even in the <laughs> in the equation. So it's not to say that that doesn't exist, but it's really about where we want the focus to be. The focus is on these collections coming through, the stories that are coming through, and they are only possible because of the co-collectors that we're working um, with. So I hope he's all right with my sort of uh, analysis of what it is. And I mean, um, yeah, we're, we're often concerned with just those power dynamics, as, as I'm sure you know, many of the listeners know um, that we're faced with on a, on a daily basis. And it's sort of, it's so interesting working at the National Museum because it's like um, a constant feature in kind of like most decisions you make of the day. And um, for somebody like myself, who's very reflexive <laughs> as a person, it um, can be a bit overwhelming. Um, what am I trying to get at? Like it's, it's just, I feel fortunate to be in a role where I can have these conversations and, you know, critically engage with some of these key principles that affect a lot of things outside of curating. It just kind of goes, it really connects to my um, principles and morals and values as a person. Um, so there's a lot of that that goes, I feel fortunate, but at the same time, you are really pushed to the edge many times over the many different projects that you may be involved in. Uh, so that's sort of, yeah, I guess I'm just trying to talk a little bit about those points of tension, those points of deep discussion and how something like co-collecting, which has now become a norm, but is implicated by all of that and is a result of all of that really. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to end on maybe some tips that you might be able to give to other museums that may be interested in starting up or being involved in a co-collecting project, whether it's for climate change or for other topics. Do you have any tips or any suggestions for starting that process and being involved in that? Um, I, I, would, I would like to take any tips anyone's got for me, so please. Uh, if you're listening and think, oh my gosh, that could really help Rachel, an article, anything, send it my way. I'm always um, keen to call it all, which is talk or uh, learn, you know. And um, I guess for me, what's been the most valuable is, um, oh, I mean, in terms of climate change, I think for us, it's really privileging and helping give a platform to indigenous sort of ways of knowing and speaking about it. Um, that would be really helpful because when I was doing reading a lot of the literature and sort of looking at a lot of other, other shows, um, 
I understand that we have to use sort of a lot of the mainstream language to articulate our points to the general audience and that, but I do think if we could do a little bit more around um, privileging Indigenous concepts or Indigenous ways of thinking and doing a bit of work to make that, translate that for mainstream, that would be really useful because um, I guess one of the most rewarding things to come out of Tukulau has been, um, there's already a touring show that half of the images from on the show are from the co-collecting trip and the other half, it's sort of a comparative uh, view from New Zealand photographer, Glenn Jowett, who was there uh, 30 to 40 years before. And those, it's only four groups of photos, but in each group, try to have some sort of um, indigenous element in there in terms of language or concept or um, and just for example the first one is inati and inati is about sharing resources inati is something that uh, customary practice that tokelau people do historically it was done for fishing um, and sort of agricultural goods that they were able to secure it'd be brought to a central place which is called the malai and then um, the whaipule or the leader will go along and divide everything, the catch of the day, um, plus any goods according to family and everything is absolutely equal. And if there's not enough, then they would prioritize the elderly and the children and then um, you know, reconfigure things for, for what works in an equitable way. And I mean, they would always talk about Inati, the group that I worked with. Um, they would say, oh, you know, we should have nine, you know, nine participants because that's the Inati way. We have to go to every Taupulinga, that's the Inati way. It's shared leadership, shared resources, shared acknowledgement, and, and it's got to be as equitable as possible. And for me, thinking about climate change, I'm like, we could all use, <laughs> we could all learn so much from the concept of Inati. You know, these communities have thrived in a really um, fragile environment. And they've done so because of these cultural indigenous concepts that they have. And I would just encourage groups who are working say with um, indigenous communities or cultural communities that have their own set of knowledge and worldviews to really try and tap in and give that a platform, if that's what the community want, obviously, because um, that was what these co-collectors wanted. They weren't interested in talking about sea level or ocean acidification. They wanted to talk about inati. They wanted to talk about language. They wanted to talk about cultural loss and how um, this, is, this is reflected and affecting them every day. And I think those things though, were probably the most not valuable, but because a lot of it was valuable, but there are some of the most, uh, the strongest, the strongest sort of information shared with us that was really rewarding to be able to say, oh my gosh, it was really empowering for the community. And it kind of flipped the narrative a little bit in terms of giving us a lot of hope, you know, in terms of what we can do um, because the, you know, a lot of the kōrero or the, the, the talk is, is focused on the loss and 
you know, mi migration that might be needed and what 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 people lose. Um, so it just gave it a bit more nuance when we had when we really did privilege their perspectives in a way that sort of uncovered a little bit of those layers and that complexity. So I guess my advice would be that. I mean, that was really rewarding in terms of that. And um, yeah, if you want to call it all or learn more about sort of what we're doing in the other projects, I'm happy to always email or Zoom with people. Um, it's all about sharing with each other and just reiterate if there's things as well, you think, oh, we could, we could work, uh, learn from what I could learn from on my area, happy to converse and, and get some really good conversation going. Um, because ultimately we're, you know, if you're collecting to represent the marginalized or you're collecting to push up against some of the, uh, the things that have stopped representation of these groups, you know, we, we have lots of common ground that we can share on. Um, so I'm always happy to, happy to talk as well. So thank you very much, Rachel, for telling me about this this project. We're going to link to it in the show notes and also to your contact information. But I really appreciate you taking me through it and explaining this very exciting and important avenue of co-collecting and how that is playing out in New Zealand. Cool. Thank you very much, um, Ben, for your time and all the best with the rest of the series and also um, your upcoming projects and public programs. Thank you very much. My thanks to Dr. Elaine Gold from the Canadian Language Museum and Rachel Yates from Te Papa Tongarewa for their time talking about innovative museum projects that they are working on. Check the episode notes for links to these projects and to the AMA's 50th anniversary conference series. If you want to present at one of our two remaining events, check out our call for proposals on the AMA website, museums.ab.ca. You can also register to attend our September and November events today, with registration getting you access to tie-in content and session recordings before and after each event. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and review Museums at the Mic on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next bonus episode will be out later this summer. You can send us comments directly at info at museums.ab.ca or get in touch with at Alberta Museums on social media. Until next time, enjoy your summer. The music heard in this episode is Wholesome by Kevin McLeod and Summer Ambient Piano by Raphael Krex.